Traditionally, everyday banking, paying a bill or depositing a cheque, is something that has taken place within the four walls of a bank, and usually with a queue. Today, the more modern banks are being housed in data servers and are accessed only by an app on a mobile phone. Last year, researchers found that 85% of millennials in America used mobile banking and predicted that the share would be higher still for Generation Z. The bricks and mortar of the bank are being replaced by silicon chips. But is this only the beginning? And will the new neobanks and digital-only banks be the future? I'm Helen Joyce, the finance editor of The Economist, and this is Future Watch, where we explore behind the scenes of the future. Over these episodes, I'm going to take a look at the future of money, and today it's the turn of the bank. I'm joined throughout this episode by Patrick Lane, who writes about banks for The Economist. Patrick, when we say challenger or neobank, what do we mean? Well, challenger bank is probably a bit broader than neobank. So a neobank people think of as being purely online. I think a challenger bank is any new entrant to the banking industry that tries to overturn or compete with the existing orders. Sometimes it's a new entrant, sometimes it's a smaller bank that wants to bulk up. But most of the time, I think we're talking about these new online ones, which here in the UK would mean people like Revolut or Monzo or Starling. As technologies like the internet and the smartphone have come into banking, it's changed our day-to-day behaviour when it comes to the artefacts of banking, the utility of banking and how it fits in our life. Brett King is a futurist and also the CEO of Movin, which provides mobile banking. We have about a quarter of a million users in the US. Uh, we're about to uh, relaunch and expand our offering there. But we also license our technology to other banks around the world. So we're in nine geographies right now, and uh, we're rolling out to about 70 million users across those nine geographies. And the concept behind Movin was fairly simple, which was we were trying to look at What's the next generation or the logical evolution of the bank account based on technologies like the smartphone? And how do we essentially make a bank account that lives with you day to day, but is smart enough to help you save money and manage your life financially? What's the problem that you were trying to solve? Like, I'm sure there were many, but what's the biggest problem that you were trying to solve? Most banks' bank accounts today, well, bank accounts generally, were both uh, passive, where they really didn't help you much, um, but basic information like your balance and whether a transaction was helpful to you overall or not were, were missing. So there was no context in terms of how money worked, although your primary artifact controlling that was uh, was your bank account. So we wanted to basically change that. What's the most difficult thing about opening a neobank like Movin in the United States? The real problem that we've faced is that as we've tried to expand on our offering and um, you know looked looked at greater depth of services, the logical path for us is to get a full banking charter. It wasn't necessary when we launched, and you know it was far too difficult and lengthy uh, process in the initial phases where we decided, look, you know, if we wanted to go down that path, it would take years for us to launch the bank. So instead, we went down a path of working with a banking platform or provider in the US that could uh, help us launch. But as we matured, we wanted to get our own uh, banking license. So the last couple of years, we've been attempting to do that. But of course, the uh, 
The greatest uh, limitation to that in the US uh, is that there is no fintech charter or fintech licensing that you have that's common in other markets for challenger banks. So you have to be a full bank. And of course, the issue with that is that you also need to be compliant with rules and laws like the Community Reinvestment Act, which effectively requires you to have physical branches. So for us, that's an, it's always been a non-starter. We're not interested in running branch networks. We see them as an inefficient mechanism for acquiring customers and in, engaging customers. So this is, I guess, a um, philosophical difference we have with the regulators in the, in the market right now. These limitations in the US, they aren't quite the same here in Europe, are they, Patrick? I mean, in the UK, as in other countries, it's been much easier for new entrants to get into financial services as purely online banks. So in the UK, the authorities have had special licenses for new online banks, which allow them to operate in a limited way for some time. And then if they prove that they can, can do what they say they're going to, then they're allowed to become fully-fledged banks. So there's a clear path in. In Europe, there are a flock of neobanks aiming to bank digital natives on their mobile phones. After decades without a new banking licence, 15 have been granted since 2005. The financial crisis of 2007-2008 played a huge role in kick-starting this new wave of banking. This is going to be one of the watershed days in financial markets history. It was a manic Monday in the financial markets. Lehman Brothers was the biggest bankruptcy in history. Financial markets... The Dow tumbled more than 500 points after two pillars of the... For every family in this country, the stability of the banking system matters. Individuals no longer trusted the financial institutions, but they were forming great relationships with lots of other tech products. So I saw the opportunity to bring new technology, a new way of engaging with customers, and a new business model to banking for the first time. Anne Bowden is the CEO of Starling Bank, a new digital mobile-only bank here in Britain. She set up the bank because she saw an opportunity to use new technologies and challenge what people perceived a bank to be. I see a future which could be very, very different. When we go into a world where we have self-driving cars and we have the Internet of Things, I think the payment streams will change dramatically. Instead of paying your gas bill once a quarter, perhaps you'll pay it as you go. I think those sort of changes will spark a change in other products that banks offer. And we could have a very, very different world going forward. I talk somewhat of the invisible banking world. That is where payments happen all around you without you having to actually go into your app and make that payment. Customers choose Starling because they want a different engagement model. They want a bank they can trust. They want everything at their fingertips. They want value for money. And what we do at Starling is combine a service which is very, very sort of cost-effective for the customer, combined with a huge amount of set of tools to help manage their money in a model which means that they're actually engaging with an organisation that has the right ethical and moral values. It does still need its own version of physical infrastructure. Paying in cash, for example, is possible through a partnership with the post office. But if you've been listening so far to this series, you'll know that that may not be needed for much longer. When I started Starling, people said people don't switch banks. People do not sign up for new banks. Well, they are. We've now got millions of customers in the UK choosing alternatives. And this market is growing every day. I think we'll see a radical shake-up in the incumbent traditional bank market. 
So we've looked at what's happening in America and Britain. Neobanks anywhere else? Germany, interestingly, has got quite a few. And I say interestingly because Germany is regarded quite rightly, as a society that's very cash-based, where people are very concerned about privacy. And yet, some of the more interesting challenger banks or neobanks have sprung up there. So N26, for example, which has recently set up in the UK and with a partner in the US, is a German purely online bank. Banking, aber ohne Bullshit. Eröffne dein Konto auf n26.com. Its business model is, again, not to make money so much on the interest margin, but through fees. You, know, they, you pay a few euros or pounds or dollars a month for, for your account, and that's how they think they're going to do it. Any further afield outside Europe, outside the US? Brazil's an interesting area. It's a very sort of concentrated conventional banking market, but you do see challenges set up there. New Bank is quite an exciting example. Eu vou ligar agora no Nubank. Again, the big banks there have always been pretty good at technology. So that's kind of interesting, interesting battle to see whether the new ones there will spring up. There's also an argument that countries with less developed banking markets are actually riper for this because people haven't yet got the banking habit. So Southeast Asia is a case in point, probably Indonesia, where you've seen financial services rise on the back of you know, transport companies where, you know, you're going to pay for a cab through your phone, so why not pay for all sorts of other services? When I log in, I can see a screen saying, good morning, Rakefet. That's the start. Until recently, Rakefet Rusak was the CEO of Israel's oldest bank, Leumi. Originally founded in London, it's almost twice as old as the state of Israel itself. But I visited her in Tel Aviv, where she gave me a tour of Israel's youngest bank, Pepper, on her mobile phone. The look and feel is more like a Facebook or WhatsApp. Through the main menu, I can access all my financial activities, everything I want. The current account, the, the, the transfers, uh, my payments, loans that I took, everything. I can also uh, locate the nearest ATM. And then when I scroll down my feed, I can see a whole world of customized content. I can see here on my feed that so far I spent X amount of shekels this month in my favorite coffee shop. And they also tell me that it's much more than others my age or my kind. So it's funny, I, I see that I'm drinking too much coffee. When Rekhefet took over as Lomi's boss seven years ago and began visiting branches, she could see something wasn't quite right. Over the past two decades, digital services had transformed pretty much every aspect of everyday life. I could see very easily that the current retail banking is totally, totally passé. I could see all the people coming there and waiting. I didn't believe that it could go on. And if I ask you, Helen, when was the last time you were in a bank branch? <laughs> It's more than 20 years ago, Rick Effett. Okay. I was an early adopter of online banking, and that's meant that I've been a late adopter of mobile banking. This is, this is where the idea came from. You have to take into account that customers already, they expect a different user experience than what they get in banking. And also technology is there. You don't, you don't have to wait for a technological breakthrough to have a change. So it's like cheaper, it's nicer, it's easier to use, and it's more personalized. Suppose they succeed, though. Let's imagine it. Let's imagine a world with no bricks and mortars banks. We know that these neobanks are super efficient because they just don't have the legacy buildings, the legacy software. 
what would be wrong with that world? Why aren't we there? Oh, there'd be nothing wrong with it at all. And if you were, if you like, starting the world from now rather than inheriting the legacy of the past few decades, that may well be where you'd start. The reason why you aren't there, I think there are a few things. One is, actually, I think scale matters in, in banking. If you've got a, a big balance sheet, you can have a, a range of different risks on your lending book. Second, there are uh, regulatory hurdles. I mean, regulators are probably going to be more comfortable with banks that are at least a certain size, as long as they're not too big. So you alluded to this idea that you could just move everything onto your phone. Doesn't that raise data issues? Are people starting to worry about that or should we not bother worrying about it? I think it's something we should worry about, for sure. Challenger banks, near banks, they are going to use a lot of data to support their business models. And that's because the business models are actually slightly different. So Monzo in particular has been very explicit about this, that whereas conventional banking is based on borrowing money in the form of deposits and then lending it out at interest at a higher rate and making money on that margin, they see themselves as providing a a marketplace where you can provide all sorts of services. So it might be that they look at your spending pattern because they've got all this data about every transaction you make, who you pay for electricity or gas, where you buy your lunch, who you have your mortgage with. And they can say, well, if we can find you a better deal, would you be interested? And then they might take a commission on that. And of course, People may worry about how the banks use that data. They may be worried about privacy. Of course, the banks already have that data. You can see your pays in your bank statements and have done for years. But, of course, they're able to use it much more efficiently to exploit it, to make money out of it for themselves and in more efficient ways. And I think that's also something that people will have to be conscious of. Brett King again. So I guess in terms of risk profile for the customer, there's a lot of concern about data privacy and things like this. But actually, I I think the environment we're moving to, particularly as we start thinking about banking contextually, one of the great benefits of this is that identity issues that we have associated with bank accounts today, like identity theft, that sort of disappears because if I'm building something that's behaviorally linked to you uniquely, then I resolve that. But of course, I guess one of the challenges is uh, people who aren't technology savvy, do they get left behind in this? I would hope that the trend that we've seen with devices over the last few years, both in terms of affordability Um, you know, of uh, mass market products and the simplicity of use will continue such that uh, these people won't be left out. Ultimately, if you can just talk to your phone and tell it what you need, then that's uh, the real opportunity. But of course, there is potential for abuse with any new technologies like this. So I guess the really interesting part of this is regulators, if they want to reduce risk to the market, they're going to have to become technology savvy as well to uh, be able to manage these uh, new ways of banking as they emerge in society. Anne Bowden is sensitive to this. She says that the issue of data is central to the ethos of Starling Bank in the UK. I spent a long time in the traditional banking industry and I felt that banks were using data against their customers. They were using the customer's data to sell them more product. And that was fundamentally wrong. And it got the big banks into trouble. You know, they ended up with so much mis-selling. Things have moved on a lot since then. And the new neobanks, the new digital banks 
uh, recognize the fact that the data is owned by the customer. And by allowing the customer access to that data, the customer can be more empowered and can make better choices. Patrick, is this digital world really the future of banking? Or will there always be a place for a more traditional model? I think both those things are true. It's clear that online banking is the future. Now we've started doing this, we're not going to stop it. It's so convenient. But at the same time, it's hard to see branches going away terribly quickly, apart from the fact that they're there and things take a while to change. It's not easy to run down banking estates. But certainly in the United States, you're seeing branches being opened by some of the big banks. That's for really, I think, for geographical reasons. So if you look at you know, the biggest banks in the United States, you know, JP Morgan, Bank of America, you would think that if you went into every town anywhere in the US, you'd see a branch of Chase, which is JP Morgan's retail brand, or you'd see a branch of B of A. And you won't. Because for historical reasons, these were really regional banks that got bigger and bigger and bigger. And so you're seeing both those banks open branches in places where they really haven't been before. And opening the branch is the way they establish a bridgehead, although they expect that people will do their banking digitally. But having their physical presence, they think, is very important. It's something like an advertising model in a way. Yes, it is. It's not entirely a, a loss leader, but it's part of it. Having a presence on the ground is what's expected. And I think that's also in a, in a place where the, the tradition of the community bank is still very strong. I mean, America has something like 5,000 mainly small community banks, all of which are local, both in big cities and in, in small town America. Now, that's not to say that JP Morgan and Bank of America and others aren't also closing branches. They are, but they're thinking, where do we need branches? Where haven't we had them already? Where do we need to be? And so you're seeing this mixture of the two. Now, of course, a pure neobank will say this strategy is doomed. But when you've got the sheer scale, presence, brand recognition, which still counts, and also the ability to throw billions at technology... These are not competitors that you should take lightly. So the big banks in America are formidable competitors. And of course, if they want to hire the best talent in technology, they can pay what they like. They might even write a cheque. But how do the CEOs of these challenger banks see the future? And Bowdoin again. I think the bricks and mortar bank will, well, the branches will continue to decline. I think that we'll be looking at a future where perhaps there's only one branch per town and banks will start sharing branches. But... We still have an obligation as a society to look after all people and therefore we need a way of providing services to the people who cannot use the app. But all banks are different and Starling is based on providing services to those people that live their life on the smartphone. Brett King. You know, in the future, when you walk into a grocery store and you don't have enough cash to complete your uh, grocery shopping today, you'll get uh, credit offered to you as you walk in the store. If I know your intent is to buy a home, then uh, as you're walking uh, into a, an area with a development or into a home that's on the market, you'll have mortgage options presented to you in real time. So that's really the contextuality piece that we see that's really critical. The need to go to a bank branch and sign a piece of paper, as we've had in the past, that will disappear purely because it represents unnecessary friction in the process for doing the day-to-day -day banking stuff you'd need to do. Frictionless banking. That sounds like a commercial tagline from the future to me. In our next episode, 
What currency will we see when checking our digital bank accounts? Will the dollar, euro, pound signs be replaced by a symbol representing the latest fashionable cryptocurrency? When you go online and you do a bit of research, you probably find that there's like thousands of different cryptocurrencies in existence. Bitcoin is a multi-layered fractal lasagna of misconceptions and misunderstandings. Perceptions about cryptocurrencies are actually changing. So initially, people thought they were anonymous. That's next time on Future Watch with me, Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist.